Coming up, we'll hear from John Murdy about the design process for this year's Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios Hollywood. From the Haunted Attraction Network, I'm Philip, and this is day one of our 61-day Hauntathon. Today is Thursday, September 1st, and there are 60 days until Halloween. Count down to Halloween by visiting a different haunted house with us daily here on the show during our annual Hauntathon. We also have videos and even exclusive events. Links are in the show notes. You might have noticed that our music is also different. What you're hearing is original music composed by Chris Thomas to celebrate our annual Hauntathon. Today, I'm playing the full Halloween Horror Nights panel presentation for you, recorded live during Midsummer Scream. In it, John Mary discusses this year's events and drops some interesting Easter eggs. Remember that the best way you can support us this Halloween season is by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. Here's John. Welcome to Midsummer Scream. Universal Studios Hollywood is just about ready to unleash the terrors of its 2022 event on fans in the weeks ahead. But first, we have a special guest ready to share more secrets about this year's event. All the way from his home in Ireland to sunny Long Beach, please welcome the creative director and executive producer of Halloween Horror Nights, John Murdy. Hello. Hello, you lovely people. How are you guys doing today? I'm John Murdy, creative director, executive producer of Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios Hollywood. And the first thing I wanted to say is thank you. Thank all you guys. Um, oh, now I can see you. Cool. There's a lot of you. Um, you know, we had 2020. Everything. <laughs> it hurt me more than it hurts you. <laughs> I don't know. That might not be true. <laughs> it hurts you guys really bad, didn't it? But then we were able to come back last year, and boy, did we come back. So thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I feel like I owe you something, right? Feel like I owe you something. You know this, this is my phrase. I didn't write this, this is Shakespeare, you know, in case you were wondering. It's from Macbeth. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. How about an announcement right out of the gate? Let's go. All right. How about an announcement for an original? I almost said maze, but I caught myself. House. Coming to Halloween Horror Nights 2022, Universal Studios Hollywood. Scarecrow, The Reaping. Are you guys familiar with this? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Credit where credit is due. This is a house that was originally done at our sister park, Universal Orlando Resort. <laughs> and thank you very much. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> Now, I can't be doing that because I'm not pushing a button. Are we cool? I don't have to get a priest or anything? <laughs> okay, it only goes downhill from here, guys. All right, and don't drop the clicker. That's the other thing you got to do. Um, 
What excited me about... <laughs> Give me a break. I just flew 11 hours. I don't even know what time zone I'm on. Woke up at 4 in the morning. Seriously, woke up at 4 in the morning, wide awake. And I was like, okay, the show is at 5. <laughs> so I started dusting my monsters in my monster room <laughs> at 4 in the morning. I was like, well... I could dust the monsters, I guess I could do that. So uh, what excites me about this particular house is um, that we get to do history, okay? So the first part of this presentation is gonna be a history lesson. Is that okay with you? I didn't expect that enthusiastic a response, but um, no, you know, I'm a big history nerd and, and what really excited me about Scarecrow was the setting of where it takes place, which is the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Anybody familiar with the Dust Bowl? Give it up for the Dust Bowl! <laughs> for those of you not familiar with the Dust Bowl, indulge me for a second, because I'm going to give you a little history lesson. We Americans, and I'm going to count my... I live in Europe, I've been in Ireland for five years, I'm an American, right? But we believe some crazy stuff, don't we? Okay. So there was this thing called Manifest Destiny. It was this belief that you know, we had to not only settle, you know, the original 13 colonies, but we had to go all the way across the entire country, settle the entire land. So in 1862, there was something called the Homestead Act. Check that out. How's that recall from high school? 1862, Abraham Lincoln came up with this thing called the Homestead Act. And basically what it was is if you wanted free land, 160 acres, you could fill out the paperwork and pay the registration free and they would give you free land. And this went on for a long, long time, started in the Civil War, continued afterwards. But what it meant is a whole bunch of people that went west, um, you see them in the picture next to that 200-foot giant woman striding across the land. Um, they weren't farmers. They had no idea what they were doing. So they didn't know anything about crop rotation or the proper management of the land. So they went west and they started opening farms. And then something else happened. World War I came along. America suddenly became the breadbasket for the world, right? So that means they had to plow up more land and more land. And when I said, you know, we Americans believe some crazy stuff, this is something they actually believed back then. If you plowed the land, the rain will come. Right? It was kind of like, if you build it, another great universal movie, they will come. So they plowed up all this land thinking, well, it's just going to, you know, the environment will change, it'll start raining, but it didn't happen. In fact, they had a drought. And the area we're talking about is in the South American prairies, so this is kind of the hot spot where you see on that map. Um, all of the land just turned to dust, and as the winds came along, it just blew it all off the land, destroyed thousands and thousands, millions and millions of acres. And these are actual newspaper headlines, and this is all part of the research I do when I'm first starting to work on a house. So you have these things called black rollers or black blizzards, and to me, there's nothing scarier than history. Why is that? Okay, just imagine yourself. Imagine that's your house, okay? You're a farmer, you're waking up on a Saturday or Sunday, and you come outside and you're like, oh, what a beautiful, oh my God! <laughs> Look at how big that is. Imagine this 200, 300 foot dust cloud is coming at your house. And then when it left, it left this. Honey, I'm gonna get the car and I'm gonna go. 
Oh. Never mind. I think I'm going to hitch up Nettie and we're going to... Oh. Everything was covered in dust. And if that wasn't bad enough, <laughs> after the dust storm swept all the topsoil off this country, then came, not kidding, the plague of locusts. <laughs> millions and millions and millions of locusts descended on the land. Actually, my grandmother grew up in South Dakota around this time, right? And she remembers the plagues of locusts that were coming across the prairies and in, into the farms in those days. And I remember as a kid, she told me that they were so thick on the windows, it blacked out like all light. Everything went dark. So when I say history is horror, this is what we're talking about. So what did people do? They left. It was the biggest mass migration in U.S. history up to that point. I think it was 3.5 million people just got up, abandoned their houses, and left. These are all famous photographs taken by Dorothea Lange. They're in the uh, Library of Congress. Um, and this is great research for us. So when we're starting working on something like this, we start plowing through all of those pictures. We start studying everything. And it suddenly dawned on me that what we were really doing was an ecological horror story, right? Because horror as a genre, since the beginning of time, it always deals with the you know, existential threats of our time. Do you remember like back in the 1950s when there was all those giant atomic mutated you know, insect movies? Universal made some of them like Tarantula or The Deadly Mantis or the Warner Brothers film Them. What that was really dealing with was the atom bomb and the fear of the atom bomb. So this is an ecological horror story about a climatic disaster. Now, when I was doing research, I kind of focused on these three images. The image of the uh, scarecrow, that's from Orlando, that's from their house. Um, but I also like the idea of these abandoned farmhouses, and I like the idea of like nature trying to reclaim itself. So that's why you see all the vines crawling up the farmhouse. But then I also started zeroing in on crows, because technically, Crows are supposed to be afraid of scarecrows, but in this particular house, they are in league together. And I liked one phrase that I pulled from Orlando's treatment that I thought was excellent, and that is the silent sentinels of the land. What's a sentinel? A sentinel's a guard, like a soldier that's on post. So we really like the idea that, you know, these farmers have come in, they've overworked the land, the land is all blown away, the topsoil's blown away and everybody's leaving and abandoning their farmhouses, and who's left? The scarecrows and the crows. And now they're gonna come back and reclaim the land from the people. And these are the people. This is another picture by Dorothea Lange. Um, so the farm families that stayed behind, that didn't leave yet, they're the ones that are at peril because the scarecrows are coming for them. Now we'll get into the environments real quick, and we have a lot to cover today, so I'm gonna go kind of fast. Um, when I gave this to my art director, production designer, Chris Williams. Give it up for Mr. Williams. Tomorrow is Chris's birthday, so he's, he's off at a family thing this weekend, but he sends his best to all of you. Um, but I gave Chris all of the research, all of the pictures I pulled, and then he designed our farmhouse. This is the original elevation. You see all the crows lining the roof. You see the vines overtaking the house. And then we turn that into a color elevation, which looks like this. And then if you're on the parking garage of Curious George, <laughs> just happened to notice on Twitter that a lot of people take pictures of this particular facade. Um, you can see it being built right now. 
So we carry that theme through in the beginning of the house as you go inside. The vines are crawling all over the walls. They're actually grabbing things and, and taking things out of the house. Um, and then we carry it all the way through into the family room where you see the crows. They've all come in through the chimney. And um, when I was doing research, there was one image that I particularly liked that I gave to Chris, and it's this image. Um, you see this little girl in a kitchen. Um, back in the 1930s, uh, they didn't have money for wallpaper in these farmhouses. They didn't have money for insulation. So what they used is old newspapers. So I gave that to Chris, and then working with our art department, he started to develop um, elevations that would work that into it, along with the idea of like makeshift furniture. They didn't have money to go buy nice furniture. They usually went to a junk heap, found some old you know, pieces that were broken. They'd hammer some boards across it, and that would become your kitchen table. So in Chris's drawing, it looks like this. And then everything had to be self-sufficient. You know, if you were on a farm somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you couldn't go to the grocery store to get groceries. So what they did in those days is they had pantries and a lot of canned goods and goods in jars. So again, I pull all the research, give it to Chris, and he draws it up. And then even like the animals, they would have like a smokehouse on the property where they would butcher their own animals and make their own meat. So we're going to take you through the smokehouse. Now, of course, it'll start out as, you know, pelts hanging on the walls and eventually it turns into intestines and, you know, skin people. Because what the scarecrows are doing is they're taking anybody that's left on the land and they're turning them into more scarecrows. So they're building their ranks that way. Um, then we have to leave the farmhouse. Um, I love this picture when I was doing research of this outhouse. Um, thought, this is a wonderful water spritz opportunity. <laughs> you're welcome. So you're going to go by this old outhouse, and of course, you know, you're going to get sprayed. But again, the crow, you keep seeing these crows showing up. They keep showing up through the whole thing. You see them as you go through the entire experience, including when we get to the barn. There's a whole number of them on top of the barn. And then, um, since we were talking about water spritz effects, um, I did a lot of research on bird poop. Okay. <laughs> hours and hours. I think I spent a whole day researching bird poop. Because I wanted to get something like this, this kind of consistency. Um, why does that come into play here? Because there's a scene in the barn, we call it the rookery. Does anybody know what a rookery is? Okay, yeah, but what is it? That's where crows go. Yeah, that's where crows make their nests. They make their nests in a rookery. So we're going to take you through the rookery. This is a ground plan down view of it there. Um, it's a, and I'm going to screw this up, it's a dectagonal, dectathonical? It's a ten-sided room. Um, and the crows are all above you. And then all those dark spots, that's their poop. And, it, you know, just to go one better... Um, they're going to poop on you as you go through the scene. So I've got my special effects guy working on this. It's going to be excellent. Um, and at the very end, you end up in this place called the Hive. And this is where they're taking all of the farmers, anybody who stayed on the land, who overstayed their welcome, and they're ripping their guts out, stuffing them filled with hay, and turning them into human scarecrow, or turning the, the humans into scarecrows. 
And I'm gonna run you through the characters real quick. Um, so this is the work of our artist, Lucas Colshaw. I think you guys know who that is. He's been our artist since the, since I brought Horror Nights back in 2006. He's been with us every year. If you went through The Bride of Frankenstein Lives last year, Lucas did all those gorgeous illustrations. Um, so we have a whole bunch of different kinds of scarecrows. I'm just gonna click them through them real quick. These are our baseline scarecrows. And then these are what we call dusty crows. So they're like covered in that, in that topsoil that's blowing all everywhere. They're all chalky looking. And these are the skelecrows. And the seepy crows. So these are the ones that were human not so long ago, but the blood from their wounds is still seeping through their scarecrow wrappings. Beast Crow and Barn Crow. And these are the humans that are being turned into scarecrows. These are our cocoon crows. And then when we got to the ending, we thought, well, who's behind this all? Like, what's causing all this? There has to be somebody leading these scarecrows. So we decided to invent uh, a character that didn't exist in the previous version in Orlando. Um, somebody that would be behind all of this, we call him King Crow. I want that coat <laughs> and that hat. Maybe not the pants, but the hat. Um, so obviously this is a stilt walker. Um, and he's actually got uh, LED eyes because all of this, the crows in this house, they all have red eyes and they all glow red. Um, so this is the man behind everything. And this is a, a bonus shot that Lucas did. This is just the full cast. And that's Scarecrow. Water and electricity is never a good idea. Kids, don't do this at home. All right. What should we do now? Do you want to hear a Hollywood ghost story? Do you want to hear an old Hollywood ghost story? Okay. Back in the 1920s, at the early days of the birth of you know, cinema, um, not too many years after Carl Lemley moved his company west and opened Universal Studios in 1915, um, the local newspapers in Hollywood have this headline. Lillian Von Drake, the heiress to the Von Drake oil family fortune, has announced that she's getting married to a man named Maxie DeVille. Now, Maxie DeVille is what you would have called back in the 1920s a drugstore cowboy. What that means is uh, it's a guy who dresses up like all fancy clothes and hangs out in front of drugstores in order to pick up women. In this case, he met Lillian, he swept her off her feet, she falls head over heels in love with him, and they get married, much to the chagrin of her mother, Mildred Von Horn, who is the widow who has the entire oil fortune. Because no sooner do they get married, Maxie starts to work on a luxury hotel. It's up in the Hollywood Hills, it's just directly below the famous Hollywood Land real estate development sign. But he spends all of this money, millions of dollars, building this beautiful luxury hotel and starts hobnobbing with the 
you know, rich and famous of Hollywood. And then, only a few months after that, tragedy strikes. A pair of sisters, Dottie and Dolly Klampendorf, are found dead on the premises. Dottie, the maid, is found swinging by her neck in the elevator. Dolly, the cook, is found with her head in the oven, an apparent double suicide. But then more stuff happens. Strange accidents that can't be explained, suicides, until the Hollywood press starts laboring, laboring, labeling Maxie's Hotel a hotel of horrors. And then tragedy strikes again. Mildred Van Horn, the mother-in-law, is found dead in her bathtub, electrocuted when a radio accidentally falls into it. And then tragedy strikes again. Lillian DeVille, formerly Van Horn, dies in a freak fire in her bedroom. Now, during the fire, Maxie rushes to her side in an act of bravery, tries to put out the flames. He's badly burned, but he survives. And then the police start getting suspicious. They begin to suspect that Maxie DeVille is behind all of these murders. There is a long trial, and after several months, the verdict returns, or the jury returns a verdict of guilty, and Maxie gets sentenced to death. Now there's appeals, and that goes on for years and years and years, but finally, in San Quentin, as they're closing the gas chamber door, and the gas fumes are coming up to his face, he laughs and cries out, I'll be back. And that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Stay tuned, boys and ghouls. You know what? What would be better than that? How about a surprise special guest? All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage our good friend at Halloween Horror Nights, Slash. Have a seat. Oh. Hey. I think they like you. You're pretty good up here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, Slash texted me, and he was offered to come down and hang out with us today, which I thought was super, super cool and very nice of him. And I was thinking about it, and I was like... You're very quickly becoming probably the person we've probably collaborated with the most in the history of Halloween Horror Nights. You think? Yeah, it's, 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 we've done a lot of these now. Um, so I thought it would be cool just to start at the beginning, if you wouldn't mind. In uh, 2014, do you remember, I'll even back up from there, do you remember the first time you came to Horror Nights? I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, it was uh, the Black Sabbath maze was the yeah. thing. And I think that's the first time you and I met. And it I, was. I yeah. was so blown away by this maze, and uh, had the best time. And I was I was very vocal about it. You know, probably more animated than you'd usually see me. 
Anyway, and so I was hooked on Halloween Horror Nights from that moment on. And I remember that night when we came out of that maze, you said, I, I, I'd like to do this. How can we do something together? And so I was like, okay, let me think about that. And then a year later, I sent you the treatment for Clowns 3D. Which was super exciting, because I, I did. I, I offered to get involved, but I mean, like, what capacity? I didn't know. And... Uh, he, he called me up and he goes, hey, I've got this, this original maze that we're doing, and uh, would you be interested in doing the music? It's this psycho clown thing. And I wrote something in my mind that second. <laughs> you wrote it like right away, didn't yeah, you? I, yeah, literally when you told me that, I had a melody in my head, and that's basically what this is based on. Cool, well, let's, I'm, you know, I brought a lot of goodies today, and we have a lot of ground to cover, so I'm gonna play a little sample from this. Um, I think I brought the track of the whole maze, so forgive me, I might have to cut it off a little bit early, but here's, we're going to go back down memory lane and revisit some of the things Slash done with us in the past, and we're going to share some of the things Slash is doing with us in the future. So here's a little bit of Clowns 3D. All right, give it up for Clowns 3D. All right. Then a little bit of time went past, about four years, and um, we found out that we were going to be bringing the Universal Monsters to Halloween Horror Nights. And you were the you're the first person I called right after that. Do you remember? What was your reaction when I made that call. Well, it was, it was out of the blue, so I was like, you know, really, really surprised. And uh, you told me what the, the concept was, and it was just super exciting because, you know, I'm old school fan of the Universal Monsters. And to get the phone call, hey, do you want to try, you know, because he was really, really polite about it, you know, like, like seeing if maybe I was busy or whatever it was. And he goes, would you be interested? Well, you're in a pretty big band, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, but I mean, all things considered, I'll find time, you know. And uh, so he, he told me what the concept was, and I was just super ecstatic to get involved with it. And it was a lot of fun to do. And uh, the artwork was amazing. It was very inspiring, so it was easy to come up with a, uh, a melody that I thought would work for it. Of all the Universal Monsters, what's your, do you have a favorite? Um, I'd have to say I'm, I'm pretty partial to Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> This, the, the tragic, you know, like, <laughs> um, yeah, so it would, be, it would be Frankenstein, then Dracula, then the werewolf, and then the mummy. The mummy, he always, <laughs> and, we'll get, and, we're and gonna Quasimodo, talk about, right? we're gonna talk about the mummy, don't worry, the mummy is getting his due. Um, so, well, speaking of Frankenstein, here's a little sample from Universal Monsters 2018, We Belong Dead. 
Cool, give it up for Universal Monsters! And then a change of pace. Cool. Then the next year, 2019. 2019. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And this is a different kind of piece of music that you created for us. Why don't you tell yeah, us about that? Well, because there was a whole, there was a real story going on here, and it sort of evoked, I thought, something that was a little bit more classical and moody, you know. And, and also, like, the, the setting, the beginning of the, of the house was the gypsy camp. Right. So it kind of suggested... Well, there diff- yeah, there was different feels for the different aspects of the story because you were, you were going through... Um, you had, you had the, the gypsy camp, you had the, the lab, you had all these different you know, elements going on. So they all had different moods. So this is a, a little snippet from Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, The Gypsy Camp. Cool, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And then after, yeah. I take it you guys like The Bride of Frankenstein Lives, huh? Now, what do you remember about this particular one? Um, well, I mean, it was cool because it was, it was all female themed, right? <laughs> I, I was sort of partial to that idea, you know? <clears throat> and then, I mean, you had this, this great story of, of the Bride of Frankenstein trying to revive her, uh, her mate and having to deal with uh, getting the, the vampire, uh, what do you call the vampire brides? Yeah, to to work with her, and in order to work with her, she had to kick the shit out of him. <clears throat> <laughs> so it was just, just a really, really interesting concept, and uh, it was just fun to make up something for it. So, I, and I know you guys all the time, you guys are like, you know, asking about the music from The Bride. So this is a little snippet from The Bride of Frankenstein Lives.
awesome. Bride of Frankenstein lives. I had to let that one play. I, I'll go on record. So far, that's my favorite of, of all the scores you've done for us over the years. Um, but the Universal Monsters legacy at HHN is not over. As you well know, we announced earlier this year a new house called Universal Monsters Legends Collide. Um, just real quick, tell you a little bit about the concept of this house. Um, it starts with this. Believe it or not, now Universal made a ton of Universal Monsters movies. Do you remember all those ones like towards the, kind of when they got into the 40s and they just started throwing the kitchen sink at it? Like House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. It was like, you know, okay, we'll have the Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula. You know, they just like pile them on. Believe it or not, they never did a movie in the original Universal classic monster horror cycle that had Dracula, the mummy, and the Wolfman. Never happened. So, now it is. So what we did is we partnered with our uh, sister park, uh, Universal Orlando Resort. Um, our, our creative teams joined forces to create this overall concept, and we actually did it as kind of a two-parter. So in Orlando, that's like part one of the story. That's going to Egypt for the expedition. And then part two is in Hollywood, which is where it picks up when it comes back to London. Um, so speaking of London, um, this particular house for Hollywood is set in the Limehouse district. Now you grew up in England, right? Do you know what I'm talking about, the Limehouse? Never been there? <laughs> it's along the River Thames, but why it's important is when the British Empire was, you know, in its full glory, um, that was like the equivalent of like Amazon, right? All shipping for the world came in and out of the Thames. Um, why does this relate to the Universal Monsters? It's because it's already in the story. If you know Dracula from 1931, what does he do? He gets on the Vesta and he travels to England and then the majority of the film takes place in England. In The Mummy in 1932, the expedition where they're trying to find the mummy is funded by the British Museum. And lastly, in the Wolfman story, of course, that begins at Talbot Castle, which is in the UK, it's in Wales. So we brought all of these characters to London. Now, why are they there? Just for a goof. <laughs> we just thought it would be funny. Let's just have them all show up at the same place at the same time. Um, no, there always has to be a conflict. So for us, it's this idea of curses. So each of these characters are cursed in a different way. What's Dracula's curse? Well, he can never go out when the sun's up, right? He always has to exist at night. He can never go outside in the daylight. Think of how prolific Dracula would be if he could just go out in the daylight and start biting people. So Dracula is seeking uh, an end to the curse that is on his life. Um, and he's represented in the house by a blood-red moon. Then you go to the mummy. He's an eternal slave. He's cursed for all eternity to be a slave. Um, so he has the harvest moon, the kind of gold moon you see in the middle. And then the wolfman, his curse is obvious. Every time the moon is full, he turns into a beast and ends up having to kill people that he doesn't want to kill. Um, so all of these characters are searching for an end to this curse. And what it's all tied up with, or what we decided it's all tied up with, is a, a character named Amun-Ra, sometimes just called Ra. 
He's like the god of gods in ancient Egypt. And just above his head, that hieroglyph, that's his symbol. So we wanted something to represent him in the house. And we thought of the idea of burial amulets. The Egyptians would bury uh, mummies with amulets that were supposed to help them in the afterlife. Um, so we decided that the mummy needed an amulet of his own. So we designed one. So this is the amulet of Amun-Ra. This is what our mummy character wears. This is what's keeping him alive. This is what's making his heart still pound. Um, it's a special effect and a costume piece. So it's actually got LED technology so that the, the fire opal in the center of it pulses with his heartbeat throughout the house. And I want one. <laughs> I've seen the prototype, it's awesome. And here's some new music.
All right, give it up for Slash. You know, it's, it's funny because, like, we didn't know if that music would be ready, like, if it was going to make it because our audio designers, like, you know, working furiously on, on everything for Horror Nights right now. And I was flying, and I, I, I got to, like, an airport, and I was like, oh, there's music. I got it at the same time. I was like, oh. <laughs> so that's so. like the first time I've actually sat down properly and listened to that track. Yeah. Um, what, in, what was it different this time around working on um, the new house as opposed, like did you have a different inspiration or um, different vibe you wanted yeah, to tap it, into? It's always a different, for some reason, it's always completely different from one to the next. But this one was it's such a great, idea right and it's again i was like trying to evoke some sort of of you know for that period a little bit of a classical kind of thing to it and also keep it really heavy you know so this was he just put this together from all the stuff that i wrote you know and sent him so i was really impressed how he edited it together yeah. and that's to, to give credit where credit is due that is stacy quinolti yeah stacy's not here but he's dynamite to work with this guy and Stacy does uh, oversees all of the audio for Halloween Horror Nights. Now we're we're like really down to the wire, so I'm going to do this really really fast, and then we're going to get to a ticket giveaway. All right, real quick. Here's 13 monster Easter eggs you can look for when you're going through Universal Monsters Legends Collide. Starts at the facade. I mentioned that it's a shipping warehouse in the Limehouse District of London. Um, this is my original research image, and then I gave it to Chris. And he came up with this. Um, if you're going down the starway and you look to your right, you'll see it. <laughs> it's in the park right now. Um, does it, did anybody pick up on this Easter egg? What is the name? Yeah, what is it? Alucard. Dracula, spelled backwards. And that comes from the movie Son of Dracula. Um, the next one, um, the London Docks, another research image I pulled for Chris. And then this is his ground plan, looking down on it. So we have all of these crates and boxes. And I wanted all of them kind of did a little foreshadowing that this is going to involve the Egyptian god Amun-Ra. I wanted his hieroglyphs stamped on them. So you're going to see that if you um, look really carefully. You might have to look really, really carefully because the last picture I saw, they weren't on it. <laughs> so like Monday, I'm going to get a stencil and start painting. Um, but you'll see the, um, the symbol of Amun-Ra and all of the crates. Um, the dead dock workers from Dracula. I love that scene when they come on the ship and there's just everybody on board the ship is dead. Um, we wanted to work that into the experience so when you enter the shipping warehouse, you'll notice that everybody working inside is dead. Except for one guy. This guy. Renfield's behind the shipping and receiving counter desk, you know, going, <laughs> doing his freaky laugh. And he has that line in Dracula that I love that is also applicable here when he goes, Master, we're here. So, of course, if Dracula is coming to London, he's going to, he's going to, yeah, yeah. No, I'm doing it Monday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will, yeah, I'll be doing Renfield. It sounds good. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got a few credits. I've got some weird ones. I do Mother Bates, too. If you're ever in front of the Psycho House, and you Norman! Is that yeah. you? Yeah. 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 I did not know that. Yeah. Probably shouldn't have told you that. 
Um, but Renfield's going to make a cameo in our house as well. Um, of course, shipping warehouses always had these huge holding rooms. Of course, that gives us an opportunity to have a bigger scene. This is a really big scene in the house. Now, over the years, you guys have seen lots of this type of stuff in our houses before, right? You know what I'm talking about? Anubis, uh, that medallion from... These are from real movies. This is from The Mummy Returns and Scorpion King. Um, believe it or not, the whole inspiration for this house and wanting to do it... I was in our warehouse about this time last year, and I walked into our off-site facility, and I was like, damn, we've got a lot of Egyptian statues. Because back when they made The Mummy in 99 and The Mummy Returns, they just gave us that stuff. So we have all these huge, huge Egyptian statues. We've never used them for Horror Nights. So I wrote a whole house just so I could use them. <laughs> so when you're going through the holding room and you're admiring the statues, just know those are all real film props. Awesome. Um, then there's this. Also, when you're going through this scene, you'll see a chest and it's glowing and you'll hear this dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun. And it's a reoccurring element. You'll see it a couple of different places in the house. And um, I just like Pulp Fiction, really. <laughs> I, I always liked the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. And I was like, oh, we should do that with like the mummy. Like, this is the case where they keep his heart and it's still beating. Um, and then we're going to need a really big tent in the future to build this house because... Like, when I say this is the Amazon of the world, look at how big these places were. We wanted to take you through the storage rack, so you're going to be going through the storage rack scenes. You're going to run into another character named the High Priest of Karnak. This is a stock universal character. You see him in all the sequels to The Mummies, but we wanted to bring him to life, a new character for Halloween Horror Nights. So here is our High Priest of Karnak. He gets his very own medallion that he gets to wear. And then... All the sequels to The Mummy, they always go to a graveyard, right? And there's a good reason for that. It's because they didn't want to go to Egypt to film these movies. Like, did you ever notice this about The Mummy movies? Like the first one, there's all this amazing Egyptian you know, sets, and then all the other ones, they're like in America. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like, it's just, yeah, The Mummy, it's, it's he's too, here in America. Too expensive. It's because the, you know, the sequels didn't have the same budget as the original, and as they went along, um, they had to come up with different storylines. But that meant we could take you to a graveyard, and there's some Easter eggs in the graveyard. Look at the names above the crypts, and you'll see some of them, including this one, which has got the name Browning, which of course is an homage to Todd Browning, Todd Browning, the guy who directed the original Dracula. And then um, the graveyard also gave me this idea. Um, have you ever been to Highgate? In London, have I ever been the cemetery there? Highgate. Have you no. ever been there? Highgate, no. It's we got to go sometime because it's really cool. Because it was built in the Victorian times when there was a huge obsession with Egyptology. So they have an Egyptian wing of this entire cemetery. So that gave us an idea. Oh, we can go into the cemetery and then it can take on an Egyptian feel. And then there could be a secret passageway that takes you to the museum. Where is it exactly? Where's Highgate? Highgate? It's just outside London. Turn. I turn, will check it out. Turn left at Big Ben, and then you go past... Uh, I was just in London, and I can't even remember. I was too, right? So, I know. Yeah, we just played over there. How come we didn't see each other? I was there. Same day? Uh, pretty close. No, you guys were right before me. We kind of, like, did this. <laughs> um, so the secret passageway takes you into the curator's office, and there, look, see, there's the glowing chest. 
Um, and the curator, of course, is dead. And this is Dracula's scene where he comes busting in with Renfield and he's trying to steal the amulet, but the amulet's gone. Um, what is Dracula doing? He's trying to raise an army like himself to take over the world, like all good vampires. So that means we could get a, you know, a couple more Easter eggs in, including posters um, for the Egyptian exhibit they're planning for the museum. And if you look real carefully underneath where it says a public celebration, it says there will be a short address by S. Hudson on Egyptian music. Oh, shit. How much do you know about Egyptian music? How much? So I, a little bit. Okay. A little bit. Actually, I wrote some for this, so. Oh. So this is a tribute to, uh, to Slash, of course. Thanks, John. And then that also means that we get to bring back uh, the Vampire Bride. So they're going to be making a cameo in this house as well. Um, and then when you get to the final scenes in the maze, when you're in the display rooms where there's mummies everywhere, the high priest of Karnak has, a hum has the mummy's heart and he's doing that you know, spell they always do in the mummy movies, Akum Real, Akum Day, trying to bring all these mummies that are in the museum to life. Um, and that's a special effect as well. The heart is designed, it's got LEDs, it's, it's wireless so that it can take an audio signal and it starts doing the tum 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 tum. So this is what was inside the chest. And last but not least, Anubis factors into this house, okay, in, in, in a very direct way. One of the inspirations for this whole original story that um, myself and my counterparts at Universal Orlando Resort came up with was because recent research has discovered something about Anubis. They always thought he was a jackal-headed god, that he had a jackal's head, which would be a dog, right? But now they've come to realize, I don't know if you know, this is pretty cool, but they've realized that they were wrong all these years, and it's actually a wolf. So Anubis is a wolf man. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're going to bring a new monster into the pantheon at the end of this house. We're going to have the Anubis werewolf. Be careful messing around with amulets. <laughs> You're trying to do all this stuff, you might bring something back you didn't want to bring back, like this guy. And he's got an amulet too. Um, and so this is a still walking version of uh, this character, um, the Anubis werewolf, and that is the sculpt that we're working on right now, it's being finalized. And if you, can you see where the head form is? That's how tall this guy is. The mask actually doesn't even go on his face. So his head's way up here. Oh, wow. So, a little something for you to look out for. All right. I know I'm running long, so we're going to get into fan appreciation time. Um, so what we're going to be giving away is two express tickets to Halloween Horror Nights, which allows you to get front of line. Um, and a behind-the-scenes tour with yours truly of a maze or house of my choice. <laughs> Depending how tired I am, I may, I may walk you all the way down to monsters, I may not. I, I've had one of those tours, they're pretty entertaining. Do you want another one? <laughs> yeah. I'm you good. wanna go check out monsters? Yeah, for sure. Okay, we're gonna do that. You wanna go? <laughs> Who are you? Let's all go, let's go now, let's go get a bus. Okay, so the way this works is I'm gonna ask you a question. 
okay? And then you've got to raise your hand. If you yell the answer out, I will destroy it, and no one will get the prize. I know I say this joke like every year. Um, call on one person, and if you're right with this trivia question, you can play two, and then I'll, I'll, give, you <laughs> I'll give you two maze tours. <laughs> um, if you're right, you'll win the Express Pass and behind-the-scenes tour of one of our houses. Okay, you guys ready? The question. The question. What is the product pronunciation of, what the hell is that? I'm sorry, that's not the right question. Just kidding. We'll make it something you can answer. Who did the voice of Sweet Licks and Clowns 3D in Halloween Horror Nights 2014? Make sure you know the answer. Right there in the hat. Well, I don't know, we gotta find out. Who did the voice of Sweet Licks in 2014? Do you know the answer to this? Today only get your free ice cream with every ticket to Sweet Licks Family Fun Center and Ice Cream Emporium. You're absolutely right. Congratulations. There's a person right here who has your certificate. They're going to hook up with you. They're going to let you know how to get in touch with them so that you can come down and you guys can have a free night on us for Horror Nights, Front of Line, and a behind-the-scenes tour. Thank you on behalf of myself and this guy. Thank you guys so much for supporting Horror Nights. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. We'll see you at the event this year. Thanks a lot. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope and original music composed by Chris Thomas. We're counting down to Halloween with daily podcasts, videos, and events in our 61-day Hauntathon. Follow along at the link in our show notes. Our Hauntathon is made possible through generous support from Gantam Lighting and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com demo. That's gantam.com demo. Our Hauntathon team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Our partners for this year's Hauntathon include Sharp Productions, HorrorBuzz.com, ScareTrack, TheScareFactor.com, and Hauntopic Radio. The best way you can support us this Halloween season is by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. And to follow along to our Hauntathon, sign up for our weekly newsletter at HauntedAttractionNetwork.com. We'll catch you back here tomorrow and every day until Halloween. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.